to the Vanguard Trilex Podcast, where our goal is to help you to walk in a real relationship with Jesus Christ. You're about to hear a sermon from one of our weekend services in Monument, Colorado. We pray that your faith is provoked, your mind is renewed, and your heart is awakened as you engage the Word of God. Stay tuned after the sermon for ways you can stay connected with us. God bless you. Thanks for tuning in. Hey. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Vanguard Tri-Lakes. It's good to see y'all. I'm Richie Fike. I'm the pastor here, and it's uh, exciting to be with you today. We are continuing in our series from the book of Ezekiel. I sent out a text on Thursday to many of you. If you're on my text list, you got this. And I said, this week is for you. Go read Ezekiel 5. I wonder how many of you read Ezekiel 5 and said, this is not for me. Did anybody read it? Okay. Ezekiel 5, we're going to have some fun today. Uh, I want to start by reading this. This is in Ezekiel uh, chapter 5, verses 5 through 9. I'm reading uh, actually in the NLT. It says ESV on the screen, but it's actually the NLT. So watch this. Uh, it says, come on. Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the center of the nations with countries all around her. And she has rebelled against my rules by doing wickedness more than the nations and against my statutes more than the countries all around her. For they have rejected my rules and have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you are more turbulent than the nations that are all around you and you have not walked in my statutes or obeyed my rules, and have not even acted according to the rules of the nations that are all around you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I, even I, am against you. And I will execute judgments in your midst, in the sight of the nations. And because of all your abominations, I will do with you what I have never yet done, and the like of which I will never do again. This is the word of the Lord. So I don't know if you read that this week and said, what does Fike have against me that he would say that this passage is for me? Uh, A couple weeks ago, we introduced this series as we talk about Ezekiel. Ezekiel, uh, as we happen upon the beginning of the book, has just turned 30 years old. Uh, He was part of the Babylonian exile. He grew up in uh, an absolutely beautiful and prominent Israel. He was fully expecting one day to take over the family business and to be a priest, just like his dad. And five years before he was to become a priest, the exile happened. God wiped Jerusalem clean. He decimated them, desolated them, destroyed them. It was a bad, bad day. And for the next five years, most of the prophets, most of the priests, most of the leaders are going, why? Why did this happen, Lord? Restore us, God. How could this happen? We're your chosen people. Why would you do this? And as we open up the book of Ezekiel, in the first chapter, we find this man. And there's nothing really special or incredible about him. He just happens to be an open vessel. He happens to be the kind of person that is willing for God to do whatever he wants to do in his life. So God says, Ezekiel, I'm going to speak through you. And what God has to say is not, you know, happy, sunny, rainbows, joy, joy, luck club. Like, God has some very angry things to say. God is very, very angry. 
And I know, like for me, I like the New Testament Jesus, and I know a lot of you do too, right? Jesus, grace, mercy, I love that Jesus. Uh, I, love, I love the idea that he loves me. Oh, he so loved the world. He so loves me that he gave his life for me. Oh, I love that Jesus. But Jesus and God are the same dude. It's the same person. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, same person, just three different expressions. And God has something to say today to us about why he was so angry with them and how it applies to us today. But when I read this, when I read that passage, I don't know if you ask these questions, but I certainly do. I go, where's the love? Where's the compassion? Where's the grace? Where's where's the goodness? Where's the kindness of the Lord that leads me to repentance, right? God, if you shake your fist at me, that doesn't make me want to repent, you know? But if you're nice to me, then maybe I'll say I'm sorry. Like, that's the way we kind of like it, right? But, But God is angry. And I believe it's because that the Lord's love language is obedience. The Lord's love language is obedience. How many of you know your love language? Raise your hand if you know what your love language is. Love language is this book. I don't remember who wrote it. Somebody remember who wrote it? Gary Smalley wrote a book, and, and it's become kind of common language. We all talk about it. Each of us have our own love languages. Octavio and Rebecca are getting married on Friday, and we've been doing premarital counseling with them, and we've been talking a lot about love languages and how they work. They are lucky because they have the same love languages, okay? Like each of them, what is it, uh, mercy or, or acts of service and quality time? Oh, touch, sorry. Sorry, touch and time. Uh, yeah, anyway. No further questions, Your Honor. <laughs> the defense rests. Um, they have the same love languages, so they're not, they're not going to have a struggle. Dana and I have very, very different love languages. My love language is um, words of affirmation and touch. I think every dude is touch. Um, and Dana says gifts because every time an Amazon uh, a package arrives at the house, it's proof that I really love myself, right? Uh, so that's my, Dana's our, our, our uh, service and time. That's right. So we don't have the same, I was just testing you. So we don't, we don't, have, we don't have the same love languages. So when I walk up to Dana and give her a big hug, which feels like love to me, she's like, do the dishes, right? And when she cleans the house, I'm like, yeah, whatever. Like, it doesn't, that doesn't do anything for me, right? Because it's not my love language. God's love language, I'm confident of this. His love language is obedience. And here's how you know. You're, here's how you know what your love language is. You most commonly give love in the way that you most desperately want to receive it. So if there's a person that's constantly complimenting you and telling you nice things about your outfit, they desperately want for you to say something nice about their outfit. They want you to say something nice to them. That's their, that's their love language. The person that's constantly giving you hugs, Justice Fike is like a serial hugger, you know, if you know Justice. Like, dude, I've seen you 17 times today. You've hugged me 17 times today. Hey, Dad, just want to tell you I love you. I'm like, okay, okay, I love you too, buddy. He's, like, he's so touched. It's precious. Um, anyway, uh, you most commonly give love in the way that you most desperately want to receive it. So think about that for God. If we were to apply that to God, God most earnestly receives love in one way, our obedience. God knows that you love him when you obey him. God knows and receives that you love him when you obey him. And it's not because he's so arrogant and haughty that he needs your obedience. It's because he's told you to do things that are really, really good for you. He says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. And the reason is because God has only ever commanded us things that are best for us. 
The only things that God has ever commanded of you to do are because he wants good for your life. He's never going to command you to do something that's going to hurt you. He's only ever going to command you to do something that's going to be good for you. He wants that for you. He only ever prescribes for us what will work in our favor. Look at Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. 37. Jesus declared, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's a lot of all. Amen? That's a lot of all. Why, is, why does Jesus demand this of us? Because if we obey him, if we love him, if we show him that kind of love, that's what gets through to him. And we're living out his best life for us in the process. So all of who we are must be oriented towards him. I love this. Our, our lives must reflect him being our highest priority. And that's what this passage is about. The, the Jewish people had absolutely not made God their highest priority. So I just would ask you a question, and if you spend the rest of today not listening to me and thinking about this question, I'm totally fine with it, okay? How are you doing with that? How are you doing with the idea of making God your highest priority in your life? Where does he fit on your, on your totem pole? Where does he fit on your list of priorities? Is he Lord on the list or Lord of the list? right? Where does God fit in your life? How are you doing with making sure that you ascribe to God the highest honor in your life? When we get to this moment in Ezekiel, and we see this interaction between God and Ezekiel, uh, and, and we kind of make sense of, okay, there's this Old Testament angry God, and there's this New Testament, you know, happy, fun, shiny guy, right? So how do they make sense? And I just want to keep reiterating this as we go through the book of Ezekiel. Really, anytime we read an Old Testament book, I, I feel like we have to reiterate this fact. That the Bible is one narrative. It's not uh, 66 books, you know, disparate ideas. It's not two big sections. There's this God and there's this God. The Bible is one narrative. It's a holy God who set apart a people for himself. That was, Jew that was the Jewish people, the, Is the Israelite people. He set aside a people for himself and did whatever it took to unite his glory with their story. And that's our story now, because what Jesus did for us was he grafted us into that family, that people. The narrative of the Old Testament over and over again is a stubborn, stiff-necked, rebellious people turning their hearts away from a steady, stable, and redemptive God over and over and over. The amount of times that God has to say, don't you remember when I rescued you out of Egypt? Don't you remember when I did this for you? Don't you remember when I provided for you? The amount of times in the Old Testament that God has to continue to remind us of his faithfulness, it's astounding. The problem was that the, the Old Testament shows us that these people, I don't know if you recognize the language, I put you in the center of all these nations. Did you notice that in Ezekiel? I put you in the center. There's all these surrounding nations, and every one of them is trying their best to make sense of God. There must be something higher than just what we can see. And so they created, generated, handcrafted for themselves things to worship. They made it for themselves. And it was a lot easier to worship a God that, that they created than to, than to worship the God that created them. I'm going to say that again. It was a lot easier for them to worship a God that they created than to worship the God that created them. And so, for them, for the Jewish people, Yahweh was just too holy. You ever think God's just too holy? Like, God, I can't live up to those standards. You're just too holy. You're too lofty. You're too demanding. You're too unattainable. 
and you're not nearly agreeable enough for the Jewish people. In other words, God would not live in accordance to their will. He would just simply not get on their page. You ever wish God would just get on your page? You ever wish that would happen? That's not how it works. We're supposed to get on his page. I'd like to hear an amen. Can I hear an amen? We're supposed to get on his page, right? So their gods offered clear-cut, achievable, humanity-centric formulas for spiritual weightlessness and tangible favor. Their gods didn't demand nearly as much as Yahweh. And their gods seemed to deliver pleasure, wealth, favor, and prosperity. Their gods simply bent to the will of the people and not the other way around. Well, that sounds very appealing, doesn't it? To have a God that'll fit in your pocket, kind of genie in the bottle, right? That whenever you need something, hey, could you get on my page today, God? Would you just do for me what I need you to do for me, what I think is best for me? Like, that sounds very appealing. Like, honestly, if we could find that and that was the way it worked, I'd be all in, right? Sounds great. But that's not the way that God works. God's like, look, I made you. You didn't make me. And so you need to fall in line with my heart for your life. So God's chosen people, they chose to appease Yahweh, but they worshiped idols. And this is why the great Babylonian exile happened. Archaeologists would say, I watched this documentary about Old Testament archaeologists, and they would say that every dig site that you can ever find uh, across that area of the world before the Babylonian exile, so once you get to that level of ruin, every single site that you find, you will find idols. Not of Yahweh, not of our God, not the God of the Jewish people, but idols. For example, you will find something like this. Uh, the top two were Baal, who was a storm god, a Phoenician invention. They literally would find these types of statues in Jewish rubble. Or the Asherah. Asherah is mentioned a ton in the Old Testament. You've probably heard of the Asherah pole. Uh, uh, she was the daughter of what they called El. El was like an imitation Yahweh, okay? A Canaanite stand-in. So you'd find these in the archaeological ar ruins. Indiana Jones would find these for us, okay? Uh, on his way to the Temple of Doom. But you would find these in every ruin site that you would look for pre-Babylonian uh, exile Israel. Look, I'm going to give you one point today, okay? One point, if you have a pen and paper, if you want to put it in your phone, I'm, this isn't going to be a five-point uh, sermon. I know last week, Josh preached a nine-point sermon. That was very aggressive. I'm giving you one today, okay? You ready? Here's the one point. The one point is this. Human idolatry demands holy wrath. Human idolatry demands Holy wrath. Let's talk about wrath. Wrath is a retributory punishment for an offense or a crime, a divine chastisement, a proportional response. It's what is deserving of that type of offense. The idea that we would look at God and say, no thanks, I'm going to worship something that I created for myself. God says, I'm sorry, I have to bring wrath for that because it's the highest and most important uh, offense that we could ever create, that we could ever do to God. The worst way that we could offend God is to say to him, no thanks, I got it. I'm gonna do my own thing. The worst way that we could hurt the heart of God is to say, I'm not gonna obey you. I'm gonna do my own thing. So God instructs Ezekiel. This is what the book's all about. 
God instructs Ezekiel on how to demonstrate and communicate his wrath directed precisely upon his people. The Babylonian exile, when he wiped it clean, was it's kind of like um, when your kids aren't doing their homework or they're kind of misbehaving. Uh, maybe they're too addicted to their phones. Come on, any teenager or parents in the house? Are you with me? Come on, too addicted. Like, let's look at how many hours you've been staring at that thing, right? And so you have to take something away from them, right, in order to get their attention back. That's what the Babylonian exile was. I'll never forget this. When Justice was maybe eight or nine or 10 years old, look at sweet little Justice. Um, he, I think, oh, what a sweetie. He, uh, we, we had gone down to Louisiana to do Christmas there, and we had hidden all of his Christmas presents in a closet. And Justice, like his mother before him, uh, can't stand surprises, doesn't want to have a surprise, wants to know everything. And so Justice uh, went kind of burrowing through every nook and cranny in this house and found all of his Christmas presents and looked at them longingly, very excitingly. And he went back. That's how a criminal gets caught. He came back the second time, and that's when he got busted. Uh, and so anyway, we're like, Justice, man, we did all this. We bought these presents for you. Like, dude, like, this was for you, man, and you've ruined Christmas. He's like, I'm fine with it, right? But, uh, but we're like, we, we paid this money to see your face when you open this present. So anyway, so right, parents, right? So, uh, and so I said to him, all right, Justice, um, what do you think your punishment ought to be? You ever do this to your kids? You ever ask your kid what you think their punishment ought to be? I would, in a million years, I never would have thought he would say this. This is hand to God. This is what he said. We had been talking about trying to help him to eat more healthy. So I think this is where the thought came from. But he said, all right, I won't eat chicken nuggets for a whole month. (laughs) That was, that's what he came up with. I won't eat, and let me tell you something. Like, Marshall, you were making fun of me earlier about loving Chick-fil-A. I love Chick-fil-A. I love chicken nuggets. Nobody on this planet loves chicken nuggets more than Justice Fike, okay? This was like, this was like terrible. Like, in, at 11, about 11 days, he's like scratching and like fiending. He's like, look, man, let me just get a barbecue sauce package. Let me just get some. Come on, man. Let me just get one bite. Come on, man. Come on, man. I'll do anything for you. And I was like, hey, hey, look, you put this upon yourself, right? So anyway, he took chicken nuggets away from himself. That's not as good a punishment as what God did with the Babylonian exile. But it also reminds me of this incredible scene in one of my favorite movies of all time. It's a movie called Moneyball. Um, Anybody ever seen Moneyball? I love this movie. Um, And so it's a a baseball movie. Brad Pitt plays the general manager uh, for the Oakland A's. And he's trying to do this thing where he's not really playing the best players. He's playing the players with the most statistical probabilities. And so he desperately wants to get Chris Pratt, who's playing Hatterberg, to, to get on first base. He wants Hatterberg to play first base. But the manager, who's played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, Art Howe, he keeps playing Pena. Pena is going to be the rookie of the year. He's a great player. And they have this whole montage where they keep coming back. He says, I need you to play Hatterberg. And he's like, look, dude, I'm playing Pena. And then this scene happens. And I love this scene because this is exactly what God had to do in order to get his people's attention. Look at this. All right, you got a minute? Yeah. Take a seat. You can't start Pena first tonight. You'll have to start Hatterberg. 
Yeah, I don't want to go 15 rounds, Billy. The lineup card is mine, and that's all. Okay, the lineup card is definitely yours. I'm just saying you can't start paying it first. Well, I am starting him at first. I don't think so. He plays for Detroit now. You traded Pena? Yeah. And Menachino, Hilgis, Tam are all being sent down. You are outside your mind. Yeah. Cuckoo. Wanna see me? Yeah, Jeremy, grab a seat. Jeremy, you've been traded to the Phillies. This is Ed Wade's number. He's a good guy. He's the GM. He's expecting your call. Buddy will help you with the plane flight. You're a good ball player, Jeremy. And we wish you the best. Jeremy's gone too. You're killing this team. Art, I can do this all day long. That's God's attitude. I can do this all day long. I can keep having to take things away from you. If you're not gonna get, if, if you're not gonna listen to what I have for you, if you're not gonna obey this plan that I have for you, if you're gonna keep trying to do it your way, I can do this all day. So he trades Pena, and then he trades uh, Jeremy Giambi as well, and he's like, you're gonna have to start Hatterberg tonight, right? So that, that's what this Babylonian exile is. Let's look at it again. Ezekiel 2, uh, it shouldn't be Ezekiel 2. Yeah, Ezekiel 2. Son of man, he said, I'm sending you to the nation of Israel, a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have been rebelling against me to this very day. Human idolatry demands holy wrath. Look at this again, Ezekiel 5. Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I've set her in the center of the nations with countries all around her. She's rebelled against my rules by doing wickedness more than the nations. Now that phrase is important, more than the nations. God's not upset with these other nations that are surrounding because that's not his people at the time. They could worship however they want to. Our people, the Jewish people, God's people, are doing wickedness more than the nations. Why? Because they know better. That's the idea. And against my statutes, more than the countries all around her, for they have rejected my rules and have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you are more turbulent than the nations that are all around you, and you have not walked in my statutes or obeyed my rules and have not even acted according to the rules of the nations that are all around you. I love that phrase. You guys want to live up to their standards, right? You don't even follow their rules. You don't even do it the way they say to do it. You guys are knuckleheads. Verse 8, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I, even I, am against you. And I will execute judgments in your midst, in the sight of the nations. And because of all your abominations, I will do with you what I have never yet done, and the like of which I'll never do again. And then look at this in verse 10. Uh, in Jeremiah, or actually in Lamentations, Jeremiah describes the awful scenes of immediately after the exile. He talks about um, people eating one another. He's talking not the Jeffrey Dahmer uh, series, okay? Like this really happened in the Bible. Look at verse 10. Therefore, fathers shall eat their sons in your midst, and sons shall eat their fathers. 
and I will execute judgments on you. And any of you who survive, I will scatter to all the winds. And I would imagine that that's the verse when you said, I don't know why Fike sent me this text and told me I should read this chapter. I'm not eating my son. I'm not going to do it, right? Verse 11, therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things and with all your abominations, therefore I will, this word is so important, withdraw. I'm going to take myself away from you. I tell you what, there's nothing scarier to me on the planet than the idea that I would have to live life away from God, that I would be separated, that I would be crying like this, and, and he would not hear my cries, that he would withdraw from me. That's how you do it. You try to, you know, work it in. Uh, so <laughs> so uh, the message is clear. God says, you've rejected me as your God. You pursued and worshiped idols. I've removed you from the opportunity to further do so. I do not feel pity for the punishment you've brought onto yourself. I don't care that you want chicken nuggets. You said you wanted it for a month. You're not getting any chicken nuggets, right? God does not feel pity. Human idolatry demands holy wrath. So let me ask you some questions. When you hear this story, I'll tell you, when I read this three or four weeks ago, and I was like, okay, so I got to preach about this. Huh. So when you hear this story, do you feel grace for the people of Israel? Do you go, I mean, God, forgive them. You know, I mean, they're just people, right? I mean, I'm just a person. I hope you don't hold me to that standard. Just forgive them, Lord. Do you feel grace for the people of Israel? Do you see yourself in their humanity? Do you see yourself in their desire to find something other than this holy God to worship? Something that'll fit in your pocket? Do you hope God never treats you the way he treated them? Anybody say amen. I hope God never treats me the way he treated them. It's interesting. I got to tell you, I'm I'm just as human as you. And I find myself uh, tilting at lilies all the time. You know, just thinking about what ifs and what ifs. Last week we were in Nashville. And I don't know what it is about the homes in Nashville but the homes in Nashville are ornate and beautiful and giant. And it's like every street you walk down or, or drive down, each house is telling you, if you don't have this, you failed. Like, this is what success is. Do you have this? I don't know if you feel that way, but I do. I have the, that kind of conversations with homes that I look at. I go, okay, well, I'm a failure because I can't afford that, right? And so I, I often think to myself, like, what if, you know? Something strange happened to me this week, and, and it just kind of sent me into like a mental place, and, and I, I, I don't know how to describe it. I got this email this week from BMI, which is uh, a songwriting publishing uh, uh, company, and they give awards out for songwriters. I got <laughs> invited to uh, what's called the Trailblazers of Gospel Music Awards. I'm getting an award uh, on, on March 30th, 2023. For a song, yeah, okay, but <laughs> I'm glad you're clapping, but it's for, it's for a, a, a gospel song I wrote called He's My Rock with a girl named Brie Babineau. You should go get the song. It's a great song. Um, nobody knows that I wrote that song. It was like number one on gospel radio all of last year, and I didn't even know that until I got this email. And when I got this email, I was like, I started thinking to myself, maybe I should write more gospel music. <laughs> Maybe I should spend more time like really digging into gospel music. Maybe this whole preacher thing, I don't know, is this going to work for me? Obviously, I'm getting awarded here. I don't get any awards at Trilakes. What should I do, you know? And then, no kidding, I'm scrolling down Instagram. 
uh, as one does. Uh, and <laughs> and I got, you ever get the suggested thing? On, like, we suggest that you follow this person. I got this suggestion, and I want you to see this video uh, of this suggestion. Watch this. Come on, isn't that amazing? Isn't that good? So uh, here's what's funny. I wrote that song, um, and I wrote it like four years ago. Those people do not know who I am at all. They heard that song through like three different degrees of separation, and now that's like the song of this conference that they did in Florida that I had no idea about until uh, Instagram suggested that I follow these people. (laughs) So so it... Anyway, so what I'm saying is, and as I just started thinking, I really, I mean, I'm going to quit this job and go be a gospel, so I'm going to go work for the Pentecostals. Like, this is, this is what's, you know, so, like, I just have all these thoughts, you know, and I just start, I just start thinking, I'm going to take ownership of my life. I'm going to go do what I want to do, even though God has obviously clearly called me to do this job. I go on these, like, mental, like, squirrel, you know, like, I go on these, these, these transitions in my mind. I'm like, how did this happen? I start thinking, you know, to myself, I could have been a lawyer. I, you know, I could have been a speechwriter. I could have been a pop songwriter. I want to know what it's like to have a lot of money. I want a lot of money. I wish I had a lot of money. Nobody, no one to say amen. I wish I had a lot of money. I wish I had a private jet, man. Oh, how great would it be to have a private jet? I want to know what champagne tastes like on a cruise ship that I own. I want to know that. <laughs> Do you know, like I I have these, and that's, by the way, that's called wanderlust. If you've ever had those things and you don't have to admit it because I'm doing it for you, okay? But like, man, I find myself just like the Jewish people going, Lord, what you've asked for me to do, it's hard. Nobody knows my name. I don't feel important. And all of that stuff over there, I'm getting an award in Atlanta. I think I'll go do that, Lord. I think I'll go chase after glory and fame. I think I'll go chase after attention and honor. I think I'll go chase after that. That's much more fulfilling. It's the same problem, right? It's the same problem. Think about when Moses was up on the mountain. Do you remember this story in the book of Exodus? Moses is up on the mountain uh, communicating with God himself. This is when the Ten Commandments are written. What's happening down on the ground? Anybody remember? All of these people are waiting for God to come down with a message about what God wants for their lives. And they say to themselves, I don't know if Moses is really ever going to come back. Look at this in Exodus. It says, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. And Aaron answered it. Aaron is Moses' brother. Aaron's supposed to know better. Aaron says, okay, we'll make a God. Take off all your earrings. 
that your wives and your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off all their earrings and brought them to Aaron. Okay? He then, uh, he took what they handed him and made it into an idol. Think about how ridiculous that is. What if we were to do that right now? Everybody take off your earrings. Everybody take off your jewelry. I put it in a pot, I boil it, and then look what they do. They cast it in the shape of a calf. This was the original Chick-fil-A. Um, <laughs> eat more chicken, right? Fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods. Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. How offensive must that be to our God? That they would create this substitute, this fake, and then ascribe to it glory that it doesn't deserve. This, this calf, this golden calf made out of y'all earrings, this calf brought us out of Egypt. Let's give it worship. Gross. Look at verse five. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. He's not talking about Yahweh. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. To indulge in revelry. Now here's the point that I'm trying to make when I talk about this. Everybody you know is a worshiper. Every single person that you know on this planet is a worshiper. And if you can't connect to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, you'll find something to worship. You'll find something to give your attention to. You'll find something to give your praise to, something to ascribe glory to. You will find something to give glory to in this life. The human heart is built for worship. These guys are down here at the bottom. Moses is up at the top of the hill meeting with God. And they're like, we need something to worship. Uh, I feel empty. We need something to worship. And since we don't know if he's coming back, let's make something to worship. So I would just ask you, what do you you worship when you don't worship Jesus? What do you worship when you're not giving Jesus Christ the glory? What do you worship when you're not thinking about him? The very first commandment that Moses came down the mountain with was in Exodus 20. You shall have no other gods before me. I've heard people say, you know, I'm Ten Commandments, I'm all good. Man, no murdering, no stealing, I don't covet my neighbor's wife, we're all good, right? Yeah, how you doing with this one? You will have no other gods before me. Every single one of us in this room wrestles with that passage. This might be the hardest passage in the whole Bible for you to master, for you to figure out how to live like this. Because your heart is so built for worship. It's so built to give honor to something, right? I know we live in a world that, you know, Yelp has taught us that we should also tell everybody who's terrible, right? I get that. But there's a part of your soul that wants to ascribe glory to something. And if you don't give it to Jesus, who are you going to give it to, right? So every other God that we set out to worship is going to eventually let us down. That's why the passage exists. You could read that last scripture, you shall have no other gods before me, and say, whoa, prideful much? Right? Like, you're thirsty? Right? I can't worship anybody else. Are you that insecure, God? Are you that insecure that if I give praise to somebody else, it's going to threaten you? 
That's not, that's not it. God is telling us for our own good, have no other gods before me. Why? Because they're going to let you down. Every single other thing in this life that you put your hope and your ambition and your life into is going to let you down. God says, I never will. I will never let you down. Everything that you derive pleasure from is going to start bringing you pain. Every activity, including tennis, that you find identity, worth, and enjoyment in will eventually cease to please you. Only God can suffice. Only God can satisfy. And only God can supply our needs. Somebody say amen. Right? So the point is, creator God is greater than created things. Anything on this planet that you see, everything in this room was created. We need to worship the creator. That's the idea. So other than the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, what else draws your heart to worship? I would ask you this week in your journals, in your time with the Lord, I would ask you to ask yourself that question and dig deep, like go root canal deep, okay? Like let it be painful. Ask yourself the question, what else besides my Father, besides my Savior, besides the Holy Spirit, what else draws me away from God? What are the things that I find myself giving worship to, giving honor to, giving glory to other than God? Whatever you value deeply, whatever you aspire to, whatever you assign worth to, that's what you worship. Jesus said it like this. He said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be, right? The message of this post, the message to these post-exile Israelites was clear. You brought this upon yourself. I had to take your idols away from you, and I'm not sorry. God sent them to Sierra Tucson, you know? He sent them to rehab. He said, guys, you got to get away from this stuff. I've got to clear the deck in order for you to realize that you do need something. And the way that you've satiated your needs is all wrong. The way to find sustenance in your needs is to look up and see a holy God, right? He had to remove them from their patterns, from their habits, from their idolatry. Those words, patterns and habits. Come on, I know you're thinking right now. If I were sitting in your seat and hearing a pastor talk about patterns and habits, I know which patterns and habits of mine I'd be thinking about. I know which ones I'd be thinking about that lead me to a bad place. You know, the smallest little thought can lead me in a bad place. And I know that's true for you. So what are the patterns and habits that lead you to idolatry? Human idolatry demands holy wrath. And by the way, this is good news. Uh, the Jewish people, they totally got it. 100% got it. The same documentary that showed me about the Asherah poles and about uh, Baal, that same documentary said this, that after the Babylonian exile, in every archaeological dig site that you would ever find of Jewish ruins post-exile, you found absolutely zero idols anywhere you looked in all of history. So pre-Babylonian exile, everywhere you looked, idols. Post-Babylonian exile, everywhere you looked, no idols. They got the message. No Asherah poles, no Baal statues, no fertility gods, just Yahweh. They got the message. And so... We today have to start thinking about the things that distract us away from worshiping God alone. I have a hard job today because as I stand up here, I have to do my best to, uh, to convince you <laughs> that God is worth giving all of your attention and affection to. 
I can't convince you of that. I can't do it. You're going to have to taste and see that the Lord is good, right? Each and every one of you in this place is going to have to take a step of faith in his direction and trust that as you do that, that he's going to show you a side of, who, of his character, a side of who he is that you've never seen before. You got to get rid of the distractions in your life. Distractions that take your eyes off of Jesus. Distractions that satiate you. I got to be honest. Even like, I was thinking about this week. Um, James, you, you, you and I resonate with this because we love tennis. Um, I, lo- I, re- I would say this I like tennis, I love winning. <laughs> right? And so I had a bad week, James. I had, this week was a bad week for me. I went one and two this week. And I've been in a bad mood all week because of it. And Dana says yes. <laughs> what is that? You know, like what is that? Does that mean that I'm deriving more identity from my ability to hit a backhand than my ability to see myself in the eyes of Jesus? I gotta be real before the Lord. I'm gonna do a root canal this week. I want you to do that same thing. Distractions that seem so much more attainable than the still small voice of the Holy Spirit. Distractions that feel so much more immediate than the manifest presence of God. We've got to get rid of these distractions. So when I read this, when I read this, I thought about, I thought about what's going to keep God from doing what he did to them, to us? So what's to stop God from sending us into exile? What's to stop God from being provoked to wrath? What's to keep God from treating us the same way he treated his chosen people? And that's why I love Ezekiel 5.9. Did you catch it when we read it earlier? He said, and because of all your abominations, I will do with you what I have never yet done, the like of which I will never do again. And he hasn't. He's never done this to a group of people. But wait a minute. Our God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He doesn't change. He doesn't waver. He doesn't falter. So the same God in the Old Testament that put these people into exile is the same God that we worship this morning, okay? Uh, He sees all. He knows all. He perceives all. And he feels the same way today about your idolatry that he felt about their idolatry then. He hates it. It angers him. It saddens him. It disgusts him. He still knows today what we knew then, that he is what's best for you, that his ways are the life he prescribes for you. So um, where, does the, where does the wrath go? Human idolatry demands holy wrath. You, everyone in this room, including me, are idolaters. Every one of us. Hi, my name is Richie. I'm an idolater. You know, every one of us have worshipped something other than Jesus. So where does that wrath go? And that's why today, I don't have to convince you of anything except to say the name of Jesus. Because the Bible is one narrative. A holy God who sets apart a people for himself and did whatever it took to unite his glory with their story. What did it take? It took a sinless savior dying a sinner's death on a cross. That's what it took. It took the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what it took. First John says, and this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, the replacement. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord, God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things and with all your abominations, therefore I will withdraw. What happened on the cross? Do you remember one of the last words that Jesus spoke before he gave his last breath? He said, Father, 
Father, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? The very thing that God did in Ezekiel 5 when he withdrew from his people is exactly what he did on the cross. Jesus took on the wrath that we deserved for our idolatry. God would never again treat his people with this kind of contempt, but God's people's sin would require atonement, payment, propitiation, a proportional response. And so Jesus paid our debt. God withdrew from him, and Jesus died on a cross for you and for me. What a savior. What a story. Can we praise God for that? Can we thank him this morning? Thank you, Lord. God wants you to have no other God before him. He wants you to partake in all that he is with all that you are. He wants you to experience the fullness of his love for you, his plans for you, his prescription for your life, filled with all that he is and nothing else. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. John taught us that. So I would ask you a couple of questions today. And as we spend time at the communion table, I want you to be thinking about these questions. What, other than God, are you worshiping? Not that. Um, what, What are you giving your heart's affections to? I can't answer that question for you, right? You have to look in your own heart and say, Lord, I confess today. I've been given my affection, my attention, my devotion to fill in the blank. What patterns or habits are you stuck in? Listen to this question. What substitutes for God are you giving your attention to? What could be more tragic than for Jesus to stand as our substitute for sin and for us to worship a substitute for his glory? What could be more tragic than that? Human idolatry demands holy wrath. Jesus bore that wrath. This week, I'm sure many of you on Facebook and Instagram and all over the socials, you've been looking at the Asbury Revival. How many of you have been seeing this? If you haven't heard this story, it's an incredible story. On February 8th, at Asbury College, just outside of Lexington, Kentucky, um, they do what they always do. They had a chapel. It's a Christian college, so they have two or three of these every week. And um, a friend of mine, Zach Meerkrebs, who used to be on staff at Vanguard Church, I don't know if you guys knew that, Zach Meerkrebs preached the sermon that sparked a revival in Kentucky. He preached a sermon about repentance. He preached a sermon about idolatry. He preached a sermon about holiness. And he said to the kids, spend some time talking to the Lord. They had their service. They did a worship song. Service was over. But these 30 kids, and I say kids because they were, you know, they're Gen Z. Sorry, guys. You're kids to me, okay? I'm old. Um, But these these 30 students, 18 to 22-year-old kids, said, we're not done. We're not nearly done. We're not ready to leave yet. And so they lingered in the chapel, in the presence of God. They lingered there. And one guy stood up, this is the report I heard, stood up and confessed every sin that he could think of that he'd ever committed. (laughs) Just said, I gotta get it all out. I just gotta get it all out. And they prayed for him, and there was a peace that overtook the room. Well, it it started on February 8th, and it hasn't stopped. Right now, even, there are people at Asbury College worshiping Jesus, praising Jesus, honoring Jesus, and there's no leader. There's nobody on a platform leading worship. It's just a bunch of people in a room praising God. 
It's incredible. It's amazing. And now 11 or 12 other Christian colleges are going, we're going to do that. And so it's popping up all over the country. It's amazing. Revival is happening in our country in Generation Z. And I just would say a couple things. Number one, Gen Z, I love you guys. I don't understand you at all, (laughs) but I love you. And you have incredible influence to make a change in this world just by putting your eyes on Jesus. That's what's happening at Asbury. I read, I read this, and I just want to end our service with this because I, I thought it was so good. It was an article I found on, on Facebook. It said this. The movements of the Spirit in Western evangelicalism always exist in the middle of a cultural moment. A generous interpretation of those moments reveal unique traits for each one. For example, fervor for the Great Commission at the Mount Hernan Conference. Overwhelming joy in the Toronto outpouring. Zeal for the lost in Brownsville revival. Acts of healing at the Kansas City Awakening. Manifestation of tongues at the Azusa Street revival. In each move of the Spirit, God clearly manifests in a specific way for that generation. I find it interesting that God would mark this outpouring, listen to this, a tangible sense of peace for a generation with unprecedented anxiety. A restorative sense of belonging for a generation amidst an epidemic of loneliness. An authentic hope for a generation marked by depression. A leadership emphasizing protective humility in relationship with power for a generation deeply hurt by the abuse of religious power. A focus on participatory adoration for an age of digital distraction. Beautiful. This particular moment is marked by a tangible feeling of holistic peace, a restorative sense of belonging, a non-anxious presence through felt safety, repentance driven by experienced kindness, humble stewardship of power, and holiness through treasuring adoration. That's what's happening in Asbury, and I'm praying that it will happen here. I'm praying that that's what we can do in this community of faith, that when people would walk through the doors and see our worship, they'd go, something is happening at Vanguard Tri-Lakes. Those people, those crazy, weird people, are all in for Jesus, right? God said in Exodus, I'm the Lord your God. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." The same thing that was true for them is true for us. Human idolatry demands holy wrath. Today, as we spend time with the Lord and and we're honest about ourselves before him, would you just confess your sins to him? As the band comes up, we're gonna have a time of communion.
We're going to have a time where we spend uh, intentional time with Jesus. You're going to go out this back door and come around and bring your elements. I really want today to be a time where we genuinely spend time praying before God. Don't just kind of go, yeah, thank you, Lord. Amen. You know, do the thing. Like, actually spend time today and ask some of these questions. We're going to give you some space. Ask some of these questions today. What are you worshiping besides the Lord? What are the habits and patterns that are causing you to get off track? What are the things that you're giving honor and glory to other than the Lord? Let's let today be the end of all that. Amen? Let's let today be the day that we choose to give all of our glory, all of our honor to the one that deserves it, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this astounding message. I wrestled with it for weeks now. I've been thinking about my own life and thinking about uh, my distractions. I'm thinking about my idols I'm thinking about the things that I honor and give glory to above you in my life. I'm a pastor. I'm never supposed to do that. I'm supposed to have it all figured out, but I don't. And Lord, I just confess to you today, Lord, just like all my friends here, we say, Lord, that we want to be the kind of people that never put any gods before you. We want to be the kind of people that only ever worship the King of Kings, that only ever give praise to the Lord of Lords, that only ever ascribe worth to the one who deserves it. And so, Lord, we pray today as we spend time in your presence that just like what's happening over there in Asbury, where there's a sense of peace and love and wholeness and rest, a lack of anxiety, a lack of distraction, a sense of your presence, I pray, Lord, that that would come to manifest in this place today. God, give us the courage to be real with you as we come to the table. And Lord, would you cleanse us? Would you forgive us? Would you restore us? Would you redeem us? Would you bring us back to right relationship with you today, right here, right now? I pray that not a single person would walk out of this room, walk out of this church today with any burden, with any shame, with any regret, with any kind of anxiety or fear on their necks, God, that they would just be free of it, Lord that you would do a mighty work in our lives. We choose today to give all of our glory, all of our praise to the one who deserves it. In Jesus' name we pray. And can we all say, amen. We hope that today's message truly encouraged you to fight for a real relationship with Jesus Christ. We want to hear from you. Please send an email to tlpod at vanguardchurch.org. We'd love to know how we can pray for you and hear your stories about how this podcast has impacted your life. If you'd like to give financially to our ministry, just text the amount you'd like to give to the number 84321. You can find Vanguard Tri-Lakes on all social media platforms, and we hope that you'll give us a follow. Thanks for joining us, and may God bless you beyond imagination. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.